You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hello and welcome. It's Noah Rosenfarb, your host of the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Today's guest is James Darnell. He's a partner at KLH Capital, a private equity firm based in Tampa. James, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Noah, for having us. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, so James, I always like to start with getting an understanding of how people get involved in this business of helping owners with their transition. So can you share your story with our audience? Sure, Absolutely. My uh, my story, though, is a little bit untraditional or unorthodox in terms of getting into private equity. I'm originally from Alabama, went to school in Tuscaloosa at the university and started my career in Birmingham actually as an investment banker, helping business owners and entrepreneurs sell their business. And I did that for a lot of years and got to work with a lot of great companies there in Alabama. I was with a firm called Founders Investment Banking and really learned how to you know, do business and do deals. But really got to see how the inner workings of the lower middle market worked. And in fact, a few years back, probably seven or eight years back now, I actually sold a business for a client of mine to KLH. And a few months after we sold them the business, they called me and said, hey, this company you sold us is is a piece of junk. <laughs> We're hiring a new CEO and I want you to come be the CFO and help us you know, fix the company up, which is very atypical scenario for private equity and for KLH. And so my wife and I moved to go join that company and spent a couple of years actually running that business as the CFO of that company. And then a few years ago, when we were ready to raise a new fund, uh, one of the original partners at KLH was retiring, and uh, the, the other guys invited me to join the team full-time. And so that's kind of how I, I came to be. So I've had a little bit of time in each seat, you know, of the stool, so to speak, in terms of, you know, as an advisor, helping people sell companies, as an entrepreneur, helping run businesses, and as a private equity guy, investing in businesses. So a uh, little bit of all angles in that regard. That's a great story. What prompted you to leave banking? You know, most people think about uh, the investment banking business as, you know, such an attractive go-go business. Sure. And it is. It's a, uh, it's, you know, it's a great, it's a great line of work. A lot of people go into it. My wife and I were, had just had a calling to go do some other things in our lives. We were actually thinking about going overseas and doing some international kind of aid and development work at the time and uh, really using the skills and gifts that God had given us to, you know, kind of help other people more directly than just serving our clients. And so we had actually left the investment bank and we're going to do that when we got a call from KLH. And it was a lot like Jonah going to Nineveh. You know, I, I did not want to go at all. And my wife just was like, hey, I really think this is what we're supposed to do. And fortunately, I didn't get swallowed by the whale, but but it became very clear at, you know, down the road that that's what we were supposed to do. So that's how we joined the firm. But that's the good news, right, is that you know, God has bigger plans for our lives than, than we know about or can, can understand ourselves. Yeah. And so when people think of KLH, what makes your private equity firm unique? 
when people think of KLH, I think what we want them to think about is we are the private equity guys that are not the suits and spreadsheets from you know New York coming down to tell people how to run their business and bossing them around. We are you know truly partners you know with many of these business owners to help them achieve the goals and objectives that that they see for their businesses. A lot of these guys have you know grown their companies and been very successful and gotten it to the point where they're at today and they have a vision of where they could take their company but they need some help. They need either some money or some technology or they need more people on their team. They need something to really help them take them to the next level. And if you're able to provide those things and provide that that guidance, right, and that leadership in terms of being a value-added partner, you can really, you know, take these businesses to two, three, four, five times their potential where they're at today, which is a, as a private equity investor, is a very different model for working with those entrepreneurs than the private equity model of, you know, just, you know, sitting on a board, throwing out some financial metrics that you want to, you know, be achieved and whipping the management team, you know, and berating them to and driving them to, you know, achieve those results and sending in consultants and really just being a transactional participant at the table. And so we view those things as very different. We're very much more the partners in those situations to help these entrepreneurs achieve their goals and objectives. And so that's what that's what we want to be known for. And how would owners figure that out? You know, when they get uh, they're represented by a banker and they've got an offer sitting from KLH at you know, six times EBITDA, and they've mm-hmm. got an offer next to it from, you know, ABC private equity firm at six and a half. How mm-hmm. should they decide? Should they go for price? Should they figure out who they're partnering with? And how would they do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a little bit self-serving here, but yeah, I would absolutely say it's not about price, right? I mean, you've got to be in the neighborhood of, you know, the right value, right? Because people aren't going to sacrifice a ton of money for some of these intangible things. But as long as you're in the ballpark of where the value for the company should be, and most advisors, most private equity guys can quickly tell you where that is, by the way, it really does come down to fit because you're going to be working with somebody for years and years and years when you enter into a partnership with them, right? And just like you wouldn't get you know, married to somebody just based on what their picture looked like online, or at least I hope you wouldn't, right? You want to get to know them. You want to go have coffee with them. You want to go to dinner with them. You want to meet their family. Private equity and and bringing on a business partner is the same way, right? And so we want to spend time with entrepreneurs in social settings. We want to do something recreationally fun, you know, in terms of going fishing or shooting sporting clays or going hunting. And then we also want to have some good brainstorming business meetings about where we take the business and how we can all chip in and really help grow the business, right? And so I think that time together is probably the most important thing that the entrepreneur would be wise to do as he's considering private equity. But then the other thing is checking out a private equity group's references. And you know, private equity groups, most of the good ones are very quick and very happy to provide references for the entrepreneur to talk to. And what I would encourage the business owners to do is to ask for references of managers and business owners that are currently partners with the private equity groups, but also the name and number of a partner that they have historically worked with that is no longer in the portfolio, both for a company that went well, as well as a company that went poorly. And again, I think most private equity groups, while they would, you know, that would be a tough question for them, would be willing to share that information. And those are the guys that the business owner is really going to be able to you know, understand how that private equity group behaves with. 
You know, when things are going well, how did they react? When things are not going well, how did they react? And I think that can also provide a great you know, window of insight. How should owners make their way to private equity firms? Should they go direct or should they use your former colleagues that are bankers to the intermediaries to make introductions? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, Noah. I think a lot of it depends on the scenario and circumstances that the business owner or you know steward of the business finds themselves in when they're evaluating the deal, as well as the competitive nature of the business and how sensitive the company is to disruptions, right? You know, and I'll just I'll use some examples. If you you have a company that was run by a strong-willed CEO who kind of really ran the business, was a driving force behind it, and tragically that CEO died and the estate found themselves owning that business and not really knowing much of how to do it and what to do with the company and weren't capable of running it, I would absolutely encourage that estate or that trustee to engage a you know wise counsel in the form of an investment banker or business broker to help them navigate the waters of selling that business, you know, as quickly as they could. And so that's very much a situation where you want to hire an advisor and help, you know, figure out what to do there. Because it's not just selling the business, it's also what is the business worth and what do you do in the interim and how do you run it and, you know, how do you, you know, make sure it doesn't, you know, go upside down while you're trying to figure that out. And so that's one scenario. The other is a business owner who's contemplating retirement, maybe not this year, but a year, two, three years down the road. You know, what does that business owner need to be doing? And in that scenario, there's a type of advisor called the exit planning advisor, who is somebody that essentially serves as a consultant to help that business owner map out over the next 12, 18, 24, 36 months. What does he need to do as he begins to prepare his business, you know, for a sale, for his ultimate retirement? What are all the things that he needs to do? Very much like a real estate agent would help you as you were thinking about selling your house. You know, saying, hey, you need to paint these walls here. Let's, you know, put some new hardware on these doors over here. Let's have landscapers come in and put some new flowers. You know, an exit planning advisor can help you figure out what you need to do to better set your business up for the long run in terms of retirement. But then there's also, lastly, a scenario where a business owner has got a company and he wants to retire and he doesn't want to go through a big, long, arduous process of taking six to 12 months to sell his business because the company really needs capital quickly or there's some circumstance in his life where he needs capital quickly or maybe he's nervous about competitors finding out that the business is for sale and taking advantage of that in the marketplace. And he just wants to talk to two or three groups who would be interested in investing in his company or buying in in his company. And again, just cut a fair deal, but something that can be done quickly. And in that circumstance, I would encourage you to just reach out directly to private equity groups and talk to folks directly. And there's a number of online resources. If there's nobody he knows personally to talk to, there's online resources like you know, Axial and things like that that can put him in touch with the right groups. Yeah. Actually, the Axial CEO is going to be a guest in an upcoming show. We've got him scheduled for a couple of weeks from now. Yeah. Peter Lerman, great guy and uh, doing some awesome things in, in that business. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit closer to the owner. And if they're going to go direct or if they're going to go through a banker, I know you mentioned you know, socialize with the firm that you're talking to, get those references, especially a deal that went well and a deal that didn't go well. Is there anything else they should be looking at? Sure, absolutely. They really want to make sure that they understand 
the expectations from the private equity group, right? As the business owners doing their reverse diligence, they need to be asking as many questions of the private equity group as the private equity group's asking of them. And, and things like, what is your investment thesis in this business? Like, why are you, you know, investing in this company? What are your expectations for our communication? How often are you going to want to hear from me? In what form? Is that a phone call or is that an email? Do you want me to do slide decks and prepare these fancy models? How often am I going to see you in my business, right? I mean, how often are you going to be in here You know, wanting to meet with me and take time out to, to do things? What are my reporting requirements? What do I owe you? What do I owe the banks, right? How do you feel about add-on acquisitions? If we want to buy somebody, how do we handle that? How do we handle value in the equity of our business, you know, as we go to offer stock and do some of those things? So I think just being rel- really well prepared and educated in terms of what the reverse diligence would look like would be an important consideration for that business owner. So I was meeting with an owner this week and, you know, he says, I want a private equity firm to come in and pay me a whole lot of money and then tell me what to do. <laughs> and I said, well, that, you know, typically it doesn't work that way. They want you to tell them what you want to do so they could fund it. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that that business owner is, being, is, is, is guilty of what a lot of folks do, and they think private equity is going to come in and be their new boss, right? And we're not bosses. We're partners. And so most of the time, we've never been in your industry. We've never been in your business. And so while I've done dozens of industrial service you know, deals, I've never been in and run a company like that myself. So I can't tell you what you need to do for your company. I can tell you the best practices and how to grow and increase value in your business, but I can't help you, you know, tell you what to do and micromanage you. And so if that, what I would say to that business owner, if, if you're looking for a boss, then you should consider selling your business outright to a strategic and private equity isn't, isn't probably the right fit for you. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the reverse conversation. When you're doing due diligence on a potential business, what are some of the things you're looking for and what often you know, might get in the way of getting a deal closed? The first thing that I want to understand that business is why does the company exist, right? What are the services they're providing and how is the company making money? That is the number one thing I want to look at so I can understand is, you know, so I can ask myself the question, is this company going to be around in 10 years? That's kind of the first line of thinking that we private equity guys, or at least in our shop, we go through is understanding how the business makes money and will they be around in 10 years. Then the next thing that we want to know and understand is where is the revenue for this business coming from? You know, who are the customers? What's going on in that market? What's going on in those dynamics? Are they, are, are those customers consolidating and we've got a risk of, you know, customer concentration being created over time? Are those customers outsourcing this? Is it easy for them to internalize it? There's a whole host of questions you want to understand, but where is the revenue coming from is is the second. And so those are really the primary, you know, kind of things we look at right out of the gate in a business. And then from there, you go into all the other kind of classic evaluations of suppliers, competitors, financial trends, all those types of things. And when you're doing those evaluations, how Mm -hmm. often do you kind of put them in the do more research pile versus, you know, I'm going to pass right away? How quickly can you tell? Um, you know, it's funny. That's a good question. Usually you can pretty you can tell pretty quickly. Everything usually falls into one of three buckets. It's either a clear no that, hey, this isn't going to work for us, or yes, this will work for us. We just need to validate that this is what it is, or very rarely will it fall into a pile, a pile of, you know, this could work, but we have more questions and need to understand it better. 
usually that's a function of not having a complete picture of what's going on as opposed to actually having a confusing business model. It's just not having complete information. So let's kind of start with picking apart the no's. And okay. what should an owner do if they're in the no category? And, you know, is there a way out for them? And can some of the advanced planning help them get to a yes? Sure, absolutely. The first thing that they should understand is that it's not personal, which is very hard for most of these small business owners because they've spent you know years and years of their life, blood, sweat, and tears building this thing up. So it's very hard for them to not take it personally. But that's the first step is to just remember that it is business. The second is to understand that the no is all really relative to value, right, um, for the business. Because there's an old saying in the business is that, you know, all risk, right, and all reasons for saying no can be priced into a deal. But the problem is these business owners don't, you know, their expectations for price aren't calibrated, aren't correlated with risk, right? And so that's usually where the disconnect comes in is the perceived risk from the buyer and the value that there would need to be associated to compensate for that risk versus what the business owner honestly, frankly, needs to retire, is most of the time the way they think about value for their business. And so, you know, the second thing I would say is understand that that it's it's not just a no that a deal can't ever get done. It's a matter of value. And so business owner, if you were able to force a transaction today, it would be at a value you weren't comfortable with. So what I would encourage you to do is find some help, find a good advisor, find some resources online, talk to a private equity guy that's willing to help you, and put a plan together of how you're going to mitigate that risk that caused the private equity guy to say no. And if you're able to be successful in mitigating some of that risk, then 6, 12, 24 months down the road, you can either re-engage with that that suitor or you can find somebody else and that risk won't be present and you can kind of get the value that you're looking for. So James, if you say no to an owner, what are some of the things that they should go back to the drawing board and consider doing? I think they should understand why the suitor was saying no. And if it was something that, you know, is addressable in the form that they can go out and fix about their business, which would help get them to evaluation that everybody could agree on, or if it was a more fundamental no in terms of the suitor he was talking to just doesn't invest in that industry, right? Like at KLH, we don't invest in retail companies. And that's just part of our charter we never have, and that's just something we don't do. So you could have the best retailer in the world come to us and want an investment at the best valuation in the world, and we still wouldn't do it, right, because that's just outside of our charter. And so some people will say, no, they don't like healthcare, or they don't like, you know, industrial services, or they don't like whatever the, the industry or sector is that the company's in, right? But then there's other reasons for saying no, which are really, hey, we're going to say no on this opportunity because we don't think we're going to be able to get there on value. We would offer you something for this business, but we don't suspect that the value that we would pay would be something that you would be interested in. And so in that circumstance, you've got the business owner's got to understand and I think be humble enough to ask the question of, well, what would you pay, right, that would get you excited about working with me in, in terms of a price? So that way, the business owner can at least know where he's starting from. And then presumably, he's got a number in his head of where he's trying to get to, right? And he can understand what he's got to do to bridge that gap. And I think just be straight up with the private equity groups and ask for their help in figuring out what they should do. In fact, we had a company like that that we've been talking to for probably four years now, where we you know, met them four years ago as a nice little business. It was small at the time, about a million and a half in EBITDA. And they came to us and we said, hey, man, we like your company. 
but you're just a little small, you know, and then you've got, you know, a couple of issues going on. And so we've stayed in touch with that business owner for probably once every six months. I keep in touch with them and the company's growing and doing well. So they're going to kind of grow into the right size. But the business owner is also building out his team. In his circumstance, it was just a situation where he didn't have any people around him that could help run the business. It was just him. And so he's been bringing on new people and hiring folks and, and doing all those kinds of things. And it's taken taken him a while to get there because, you know, the business is growing. He's got to run the business day to day. But we're very excited about staying in touch with him. And one day, it is going to be the right time to do a deal with that guy. And we're going to have the benefit of having watched him for four years and got to know the company for four years. So there will be a lot less risk on our part in, you know, getting that deal done and, and getting comfortable with, with moving forward on that company. Once you do get comfortable with moving forward with a company and you sign a letter of intent, what recommendations would you have for owners that are going to go through a due diligence process for the first time? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. It's hard to uh, it's hard to you know help somebody understand what it's like. What I would say is the first is make sure that they pay attention to their business first. Right, that their deals can come and go, but the most important thing is that the business continues to do well through the closing process and through, you know, the post LOI process. And what that means is communicating with your buyers, saying, hey, there's only X amount of hours in the week that, you know, are my waking hours. I need to allocate 40 or 50 or 60 or however many there are to the business. And then for the closing process, I'm going to work on the closing after the fact. And so you know, I think people just need to go into that eyes wide open. The other thing I would counsel them to, into doing is a lot of these business owners, particularly if it's their first time, is they're afraid of telling anybody, right? They don't want to tell anybody until the wires are moving and the cash is in the bank. Well, that's a very risky kind of way to handle it because if you do that, you know, you have to shoulder the burden all by yourself, right? And there's an old line that says, you know, many hands make light work. And so the more you can bring your team in to what's going on, particularly your CFO and, and controller and your accounting staff, if you have those luxuries, as well as your lawyers, that can really help do a lot of the heavy lifting. And again, business owners are always resistant to you know spend their own money, but I think that that is is a circumstance where they've got to do that. Where if they can just spend their you know spend a little bit of money and, and make those investments, it'll make their life a whole lot easier and the closing process a whole lot easier. So we didn't quite. You can start the interview with the premise of, you know, partnering with a private equity firm, which in my mind is the owner has an interest in continuing to own some portion of their business and they want to lead the charge to growing their company because they still see a brighter future than the past. So they're not ready to get out entirely, but they either need capital for the business, they need capital personally, they want to secure their financial independence. But, you know, assuming that's the premise of why people are partnering with a firm like yours, tell me what happens after the closing and, and what's the success rate of being able to achieve those owner goals and what's a typical second exit look like for that owner? Sure, absolutely. So the big idea behind partnering with private equity, right, is the idea that you get to harvest some of the value you've built in the company at, you know, a reasonable or fair valuation so that you can reduce your risk and your family's risk in the form of having all of your personal net worth or most of your personal net worth tied up in the business, right? So you're able to affect a liquidity event, which allows you to take a big chunk of money out of the business and put it somewhere else that's more safe or relatively more safe than, than the business because it's not wise to have all your money tied up in one small company, 
or one company. And so you're able to have that liquidity event. But you are also able to retain control of the company and running the business day-to-day. So you're able to keep your job, what you're doing day-to-day, and in most circumstances, keep a big chunk of ownership in the business to continue running the company and growing it and achieving on the goals and objectives that you, you had laid out and the reason you wanted to bring on a partner to begin with. As an example of that is a company that we work with called Federal Resources. We partnered with the CEO of that company, Robbie McWilliams, to help buy out his some of his family members who were in the business that owned the business within 50-50. And they had a very different risk tolerance that Robbie did. And they, they didn't like growing. They didn't like personally guaranteeing debt. They just wanted to kind of have a nice, small, little lifestyle business that could be great for their family. Whereas Robbie had a vision to really grow his business and take it to the next net level. And, and by grow, I mean three, four, five you know, times the size of what it was when we invested in it. And so by investing in that company, rationalizing the shareholder base, buying you know, the shareholders, the conservative shareholders out, and giving Robbie the resources in terms of the people and the money that he needed to continue growing his business, he's been able to grow his company in such a way that his uh, second bite at the apple will be three times as large as his first bite. Let me say that yeah. again. His second bite at the apple will be three times as large as his first bite. And that's not because we we bought it on the cheap or paid some kind of ridiculous valuation on the front end. We paid a fair value. It's just that he's been able to grow his business so aggressively, you know, during this, during a very short time frame as we, you know, you had and made all these investments in it. Do you think most owners invest the capital of outside ownership differently than they can invest their own capital? So if, if whether they're going to hire that next salesperson or buy that next piece of equipment or go after that acquisition. You know, my assumption and my experience is owners are more likely to invest in their company when it's not their own money at stake. And and that, you know, but they're still, they're still careful and they still care about the capital, but they're, they're more willing to invest in their business when they've achieved that uh, level of taking some of those chips off the table. Yeah, it, it, it very it very much is, Noah. I mean, because here's the reality is a lot of these business owners are running these companies as lifestyle businesses where they are naturally inclined or naturally incented to maximize the after-tax net cash flow to themselves and their families on an annual basis, right, which is very different than growing a business to maximize the equity value of the company over the long run. And because to maximize the equity value of the company, you've got to make investments. You've got to hire. A perfect example is in the accounting department. You usually have to hire a CFO, and you have to invest in a proper accounting system, a large-scale ERP or MIS system, right, both of which cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. Well, for the business owner who owns that business, he's like, man, that's just a couple hundred grand out of my pocket every year. Why would I spend that? I mean, what's the point in that, right? Whereas... We understand that by making those investments, sure, it's costing you a couple hundred grand a year, but it's it's growing the equity value or the multiple of your business by a half a turn or a turn. And what is that worth in terms of the growth in the equity in your business? So it just comes down to a fundamental paradigm shift in how the people are thinking about their business, both in their willingness to you know, make those investments as well as their invest, their willingness to take risk and to hire the new salespeople and to move into the new markets and do all the things that they know that they should do, but just know that they're not betting their retirement and their kids' college fund on it every time. 
Yeah. So what advice do you have for the owners that are listening that are thinking about transitioning out of their company in the next few years as it relates to, you know, starting a discussion with a private equity firm? When should they get started and how should they get to people like you? I think you should get started. Uh, there's no hard and fast rule, but the earlier you get started, the better outcome you're likely to have based on your goals and objectives because it gives you more time to make the moves that you need to make to set your business up for success as a an investment platform or as an investment for a private equity group. So it gives you time to uh, round out your management team. It gives you time to con- you know grow the business to the level it needs to be to get you to the number that you want to get. It allows you to take care of any outstanding litigation, to move into that new building you've always wanted to do. It, it gives you time. So the sooner that you can reach out to either a private equity group, uh, an exit planning advisor, or a business broker, or somebody in the industry to help begin to understand what you need to do, the better. Because you never want to be jammed up and with your back to the wall and have to do something. Then then you're never going to get the best outcome. And any other final thoughts for our listeners and uh, anything else you'd like to share with them with all your years of experience? I think we've touched on a lot of things here. No, I would just say that private equity can you know, be a great avenue for business owners who are looking to ultimately retire or exit their business. And that don't just wait until you go on a long vacation with your wife and or your, you know, your kids, you start to have grandkids and then just realize, wait, I want to spend more time with my family or I want to retire because then you're not going to be positioned in retirement. So, you know, start sooner rather than later and be intentional about the process and then you can usually um, have a good outcome. So, James, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Yeah, the best way is to go to our website at www.klhcapital.com, and you can learn all about our firm there, and you can find my contact information there. And you can either call me, email me, text me, send me a message on LinkedIn, any of the above. Great. Well, uh, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Please don't forget to join us every time we release a new podcast and rate us on iTunes and tell your colleagues and your friends about the conversations we're having here. So uh, thanks for everybody, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Podcast.